I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, and I'm going to read for us verses 20 to 25. Mark 11, verse 20. And as they passed by in the morning, that is Jesus and his disciples, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this passage now, we ask that you would illumine our minds, that you would give us understanding, give us ears to hear, and most importantly, Lord, we ask that you would give us hearts to receive your word this morning. Feed us with the words of eternal life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So just before this passage um, that I just read for us, Jesus cleansed the temple. We saw that last week. And just before that, he cursed the fig tree as a sign of judgment upon Israel in verses 12 to 14 of chapter 11. And here in verse 20, the fig tree comes up again in the narrative. Mark um, often does this in his gospel to make a theological point. He will sandwich a story within a story in order for us to see that the story at the center of the sandwich is connected to the one story on either side of the meat, so to speak. And so in this case, the cleansing of the temple is related to the cursing of the fig tree, and now what happens with Jesus' interaction with his disciples regarding the fig tree. We saw that several weeks ago that the cursing of the fig tree was, was God's judgment upon Israel, which was ultimately fulfilled in 70 AD when the Romans went in and basically destroyed Jerusalem. The temple and all of Israel's ritual practices were going to be destroyed, never to be restored. And that's, what that's what's alluded to here in verse 20, where we read, As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Within 24 hours, the fig tree had withered away. And notice that Mark adds to its roots. That's significant because it goes back to what Jesus said in verse 14, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. There's no hope. There, there's no possibility that this fig tree will be restored. The old covenant and the ritual practices of the temple will come to an end, not because God was against them, but because Christ, the fulfillment of all these things, is now here. And Peter notices as they're passing by, he notices the fig tree and he responds in amazement because he knows that this was not natural. 
This was a miracle. And so he says in verse 21, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. This is a response of amazement. And, and within it, there's, there's almost an implied question. Look, the, the fig tree that you curse, it's already withered. How is this even possible, Jesus? There's a sense of amazement on the part of Peter and the disciples. And then Jesus responds to them. But he responds to them in a way at first glance that it seems like it almost comes out of left field. How does he respond? Well, look at verse 22. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. It seems like it comes right out of left field. Jesus, the, the fig tree has withered. Have faith in God. What's going on? Well, I think Jesus is directing his disciples to place their faith in God and not the temple. Because the temple, along with all of its practices and rituals, are going to be destroyed. He wants to make sure that the object of their faith is correct. Remember, in cleansing the temple, Jesus quoted Jeremiah 7. And what was the problem in Jeremiah 7? Well, Israel was, was living wicked lives, but, but they thought they were secure because they had the temple. Remember in Jeremiah 7, it's repeated over and over again. We have the temple. It's the temple. It's the temple. In other words, their, their faith and confidence and security resided in the temple, not the God of the temple. And the same thing was happening in Jesus' day. And Jesus wants his disciples to understand that their faith, their confidence needs to reside in God and not the temple and its rituals. See, the fact of the matter is, is we're all prone to do this, to place our faith in something other than God, to find our security in something other than God. Maybe it's the amount of money we have in the bank. Or maybe it's our intelligence. Or maybe it's, it's doctors or pastors or even governments. Maybe it's your success or even your religious rituals. We're always prone to seek deliverance, to seek security in the wrong place, to rely on the wrong things, to put our faith in the wrong solutions. King Asa in 2 Chronicles 16 is a, a perfect example of this. In 2 Chronicles 14, we read about uh, King Asa's incredible faith. And, and this is what we read. And Asa did what was good and, and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He, he took away the foreign altars and the high places and broke down the pillars and cut down the ashram and, and commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, and to keep the law and the commandment. He was one of the, the good kings. He was one of the kings who actually feared the Lord. A little later on in, in, Zech, in 2 Chronicles 14, we, we have the, the Ethiopian king who comes against the people of Judah with an army of million men and 300 chariots. And King Asa went out to meet him and, 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 and he drew up their lines of battle. But before they went into battle, this is what we read that King Asa did. And Asa cried to the Lord his God, O Lord, there is none like you to help between the mighty and the weak. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you. 
And in your name we have come against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Let not man prevail against you. And so the Lord defeated the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. He was a man of faith. He placed his faith in God. He relied on God. But something happens later on in his life where he began to place his faith in man and not God. The king of Israel came up against Asa, king of Judah. Remember, the, the kingdom is split at this time. And what does King Asa do? Well, he goes and pays the king of Syria to attack the king of Israel. And after this happens, Hanani the seer comes to King Asa and says this in 2 Chronicles 16, verses 7 to 9. Because you relied on the king of Syria, before you relied on Yahweh, but now because you relied on the king of Syria and did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you. Were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. You have done foolishly in this, for from now on you will have wars. You see, King Asa, at the beginning of his reign, placed his faith in God. He relied on God. The object of his faith was, was God. But later in his reign, he began to rely on others rather than God. And this is what Jesus is concerned about with his disciples and with us. He wants his disciples to place, he wants his disciples and us to place our faith in God. And in verse 23, he, he demonstrates the power of faith that resides in God. He demonstrates that faith in God is greater than the temple because God is able to do that which is humanly impossible. Look at what he says in verse 23. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass it will be done for him. In Jewish literature, a mountain was often used as a metaphor for doing what was seemingly impossible. And so Jesus here, of course, is, is speaking figuratively, but, but he's conveying a deep truth. A faith that doesn't doubt God's ability is able to accomplish what is humanly impossible. Why? Well, because God can do that which is utterly impossible. In fact, th that kind of faith, Jesus says, can say to this mountain, of course, when he says this mountain, he's speaking about the temple mount. He says that kind of faith can say to this mountain, which the temple is on, be thrown into the sea. That which you think is most sacred, most important, where you place your confidence, the temple all of that can be tossed into the sea when your faith resides in God, with whom all things are possible. See, this is what Jesus was looking for when he came to Jerusalem. A confident, genuine faith in God, and instead he found rampant idolatry. But this is what it means to live as a Christian. This is the Christian life. 
It's to have a humble, confident faith in the God who can do the miraculous. To believe that God can truly do the impossible. And so Jesus tells them to have faith in God. He, he shows them the power of faith in God that the impossible can truly happen. And then in verse 24, he turns to prayer. And this, is, this isn't random or coincidence. Jesus is making a direct connection between faith and prayer. In the same way, there's a direct connection between prayer and forgiveness, which we'll see shortly. You see, the one who has faith prays. Faith-filled people pray. And Jesus exhorts his disciples to have faith in God, and then he tells them what is necessary in order for to, ha to have their prayers be answered. He exhorts them not simply to prayer, but to pray a certain way. Verse 24, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Now there's several things we need to see here. There's several things we need to observe. This verse has often been used by prosperity preachers to practice the, the name it and claim it mentality. You want to win the lottery? Believe you received it and it will be yours. You want to be healed from your sickness? Believe you've received it and it will be yours. Just name it and claim it. And if you name it and claim it and don't receive it, it's because you lack faith. Is that what Jesus is talking about here? Absolutely not. That teaching is from the pit of hell. Jesus would never treat his heavenly father like a genie. He would never encourage superstitious practices. What he wants to encourage, what he wants to create in us, is a deep confidence and trust in God. And so what is Jesus talking about then? Well, there's several things we need to see and think about in verse 24. The first thing we need to ask is what does he mean by the word whatever? Whatever you ask, what does he mean by whatever? Whatever you ask in prayer. Whatever? Really? Does whatever here mean absolutely anything? In other words, is, is whatever all-inclusive? You want your sports car, your nice luxurious home, there's several reasons for why whatever does not mean absolutely anything. For one, the simple use of language demonstrates this. For example, let's say everyone from our church was here on Sunday. And I said to you, is everyone here? And you respond with, yes, everyone's here. And then I said, well, Justin Trudeau's not here. Now, you, of course, would think I'm ridiculous, but it, it conveys the point that everyone doesn't always mean everyone. What we see here is that the word everyone has a context to it. In its most literal sense, it means everyone, but within a context, everyone means everyone from Royal York Baptist Church, which means that whatever doesn't necessarily mean 
absolutely whatever. In fact, the scriptures themselves show us that there are certain things that we shouldn't be praying for. James 4, 2-3 says, You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. In other words, God isn't in the business of answering selfish prayers that would only serve you in satisfying your sinful passions. Which means that whatever here in Mark 11 can't mean absolutely whatever. There are limitations on what Jesus means when he says whatever. And there's one other text that I think will make this even clearer because it has almost the exact language of verse 24, but it adds something. 1 John 5, verses 14 to 15, John says this, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything, and then he adds this, according to his will, he hears us. And we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, according to his will. We know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. It's whatever we ask according to his will. Remember, prayer is fundamentally about having our wills conform to his will, not his will conform to our will. That's what the Lord's Prayer says, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so I think the, the whatever here in verse 24 isn't, you can just pray for anything, and if you've believed you've received it, it's going to be yours. That's not what Jesus is saying. But the second thing we need to see is this. Jesus does expect his people to pray without doubting. That's really what he's saying when he says, believe you've received it. Just like how he says in verse 23, the one who does not doubt in his heart, but believes it will come to pass. Jesus' expectation of his followers is that they would have a faith that doesn't doubt and a prayer life that truly believes they have received what they've prayed for. That is, pray in such a way that you believe Jesus has answered your prayer. Now, when we first read this, it seems daunting. Why? Well, how many of us, when we pray, we have a little bit of uncertainty or doubt on whether or not God is going to answer our prayers? I think many of us will testify that, testify to that. But I think a better way to see this is this is an invitation from Jesus. Jesus is inviting us into a deeper relationship with his Father, a deeper trust in the goodness and faithfulness of God. He wants us to truly believe that our Heavenly Father is a benevolent Father who delights to answer the prayers of his children. And he wants us to have a deep confidence that he will, when we pray in accord with his will, answer our prayers. No good thing does he withhold from his children. But we need to ask how. How do we actually pray without doubting or 
pray believing that we've already received it. Because I think a great majority of us struggle with that. Do we simply try to try to muster it up within us? No, that's that's placing your faith in the wrong place. Don't have faith in your ability to not doubt. Have faith in the ability of God who can do the impossible. But how do we actually get to a place in our prayers where, where we're not doubting, where we, we actually believe that we've received what we've prayed for? Well, I think the answer is that we can only pray with that kind of certainty if we actually know ahead of time that God will answer that prayer. That's the only way. But how can we know ahead of time that God's going to answer that prayer? If we pray according to his will. Which means the more we know God's will, the more we can pray with this kind of confidence. But how do we know his will? He has revealed his will in his word. Which means the more we know his word, the deeper and more confident our prayers will be. Our prayers, if our prayers rest upon the promises of God, then we can pray with the confidence that Jesus speaks of here. You see, there are two approaches to prayer, and I'm oversimplifying it, but, but just follow with me. There are two approaches to prayer that I believe are both right and godly. First, there's the kind of prayer where we pray for things in the revealed will of God. Secondly, we pray for things that we don't know if they're in the will of God. And when it comes to praying for things in the revealed will of God, there's a level of confidence and certainty that we can have because God has revealed his will to us. So for example, Philippians 4:19 says, "And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus." So God's revealed will is that he will supply every need of ours according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Which means that you and I, who are children of God, we can pray with certainty that God will meet our every need. And we can believe it and receive it and it will be ours. Why? Because God doesn't break his promises. Now, we can, of course, misinterpret what we think is a need and is actually a want. Right? You may think that you need a steak from the keg, but God answers that prayer with chicken from the grocery store. When Gracie and I were, were living in Ottawa, um, Gracie was in school, and I quit my job to work at the church in Ottawa, but the church didn't have money to pay me. And so we basically lived by faith in that situation. And we, we shared with people what we were doing. And there were people who got behind us and supported us financially. But we were living month to month. We didn't know whether or not the money would come in month to month. And there was one month where we were running out of money. And so we were praying. God, you have told us not to worry about what we will eat or drink. We need to pay our bills. We need to, to do these things. And we were praying, and we were praying, I believe, with confidence because God has said that he will meet our every need. And out of random, I had a, an uncle call me 
and asked us how we were doing. And I said, we're doing well. And he said, how are you guys doing financially? And I said, well, to be honest with you, we don't know if we're going to have enough money this month to pay our bills. And he said to me, well, I have an extra $6,000 that we want to send you. And I believe that God answered that prayer partly because Gracie and I, be Gracie and I prayed with confidence in the promises of God. But then there's things in which we pray for, which we don't know if they're in the will of God. For example, you're diagnosed with a disease. How ought you to approach praying for that? Has God promised in his revealed will that he will heal you of your disease? The answer is no. Could it be that he will? Absolutely. But will he? Not necessarily. Which means when you approach prayer in that situation, I think it ought to look a little differently. There ought to be a level of surrender to the unknown will of God. You see, it's one thing to pray that, that God would heal you of your disease, but you doubt that he's able. That would be faithless and sinful. It's another thing to pray for healing and believe that God is able, but you don't know if he will because he hasn't revealed that he will, but you know he's able. Now, some people would say you lack faith for believing God is able, but you don't know if he will. Of course he will. Really? You know the unknown will of God? You see, I would say that's actually a demonstration of faith and godly maturity and humility because it's a, it's a surrendering to the unknown will of God. It's a sign of submission and trust in God's will that has not been revealed to us. Not my will, but your will be done. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, I believe you're able to heal me of this sickness, and I ask that you would, but let your will be done. I know you're for me. I know you're not against me. I know you've promised to complete the work you began in me. I know you don't withhold any good thing from those who fear you. I know that no one can snatch me from your hands. So, Father, please heal, heal me. I know you're able, but your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's not unbelief. That's maturity of faith in the sovereign, providential will of God. See, Jesus is inviting us to pray and believe without doubt. And we're able to do this by praying according to his will. Which means an undoubting prayer life will be determined on how well we know God and his revealed will in his word. You see, Jesus is inviting us here to go deeper with God, to deepen our relationship and our trust in him. You see, I think sometimes we think that God is always wanting to withhold. But I think the opposite is true. God is wanting to show his faithfulness. If God was willing to give his only son for us and did not withhold him, Will he then not hesitate to give us what we have prayed for, prayed for, provided that it accords with his will and is actually for our good? And ultimately only God 
can only truly know what that is. Third thing we need to see here from verse 24 is this, is that prayer is extremely important. It's not a coincidence that right after Jesus cleanses the temple, Jesus teaches his disciples about faith, prayer, and forgiveness. Most likely because this was what he was hoping to see in Jerusalem. The temple was meant to be a place of prayer for all the nations. And what he saw was idolatry and indifference to the worship of God and to prayer. See, prayer in the Christian life is extremely important. There are a lot of weaknesses in the church of Jesus Christ, weaknesses in the church of North America. There's a number of things we could think of that that plague the church. A lack of zeal, pride, self-sufficiency, materialism, sexual immorality. But I don't think there's anything that plagues the church in North America more than prayerlessness. And there's probably multiple there's probably a multiple of reasons. Entertainment, comfort and ease, unbelief. I know that's a major generalization, but I think it's an accurate generalization overall. And of course, we know there are exceptions. But I grew up in a church of 1,200 people, and no more than 50 people came to the corporate prayer meetings. But my concern is not ultimately for the church in North America, though that's important, but it's really for us as a local church. I said some very strong words last week about indifference toward worshiping with God's people, not coming consistently or, or consistently showing up late. And I said that that is a sign of indifference to the worship of God. And I think that some of that indifference can also be applied to prayer. And so I want to pastorally speak directly to the members of Royal York this morning. When you become a member of a local church, it partly means that you're to be committed to the formal gatherings of that local church. At Royal York, we formally only have two regular gatherings, weekly Sunday morning worship and our weekly corporate prayer meetings Wednesday night. Then there are, of course, organic things that happen between members, which is wonderful. There are some churches that literally have something happening every night. We intentionally don't have that because we want the members of Royal York to be devoted to prayer and the Sunday corporate worship of God. And if there was someone who observed from the outside Royal York, I don't know if they would conclude that Royal York is a church devoted to prayer. And I know that people can pray outside the local gathering, but I think a safe assumption is if one is devoted to prayer in their private lives, they're usually devoted to prayer with God's people. And I know there are exceptions. People work midweek. People have difficult circumstances, and I get that. And people have little ones at home. Though, parents, I do want to strongly encourage you to take turns every other week so that one of you can come to prayer. If Wednesday nights don't genuinely work for the majority of our church, then I need to know that, and we can adjust accordingly. But hear me. 
If you're a member of Royal York Baptist Church and you're able to be at prayer, but you consistently don't come to pray with your church family, I think it's probably a sign that you're not all that devoted to prayer. In Acts 2.42, we get this beautiful description of what the early church was devoted to. And we read this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the preaching of God's word, and to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. That's what the early church devoted themselves to. The preaching of God's word, to fellowship, the breaking of bread. Of course, some argue whether that's the Lord's Supper or not, but I'm not going to get into that and to prayer. That's what they were known for. Would devotion describe your prayer life? Would devotion describe your prayer life? See, I think there's a lot of reasons for why we don't pray. But I think the fundamental reason is, if we're honest, we don't believe it's all that effective. And so let me exhort you, be committed and devoted to praying in your private life, but also with your brothers and sisters. True spiritual work depends on prayer. Listen to these words by Christostom. Prayer is the root, the fountain, and the mother of a thousand blessings. It exceeds a monarch's power. The power of prayer has subdued the strength of fire, bridled the rage of lions, silenced anarchy, extinguished wars, appeased elements, expelled demons, the burst the chains of death, enlarged the gates of heaven, relieved diseases, averted frauds, rescued cities from destruction, stayed the sun in its course, and arrested the process of the thunderbolt. In sum, prayer has power to destroy whatever is at enmity with the good. I speak not of the prayer of the lips, but of the prayer that ascends from the inmost recesses of the heart. Let us be a people who confidently pray to the God who does the impossible. So Jesus has called us to faith in God, to pray without doubting, but there's one last thing he wants to teach us from this passage. He wants our lives to be marked by forgiveness. As he says in verse 25, And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that, sorry, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Jesus is alluding here that the effectiveness of our prayers are partly determined upon whether or not we're living a life of forgiveness. Because the, the assumption is, the reason you're going to pray to God is to receive forgiveness. And Jesus says, when you go to pray, make sure you forgive if you have anything against anyone. Because if you don't, that is, if you come to God looking for forgiveness, but you yourself are withholding forgiveness... God will, with, will withhold forgiveness from you. Now understand, he, he's not here talking to non-Christians. He's talking to people who profess his name. If you're a non-Christian here this morning, God wants you to come to him and cry out to him for forgiveness, and then for the rest of your life, he's going to help you forgive those who have wronged you. 
But if you're a Christian, this is a warning to those of us who profess the name of Jesus, who claim to have been forgiven by Jesus. He's saying you can't eat from the table of forgiveness when you yourself show no forgiveness. The message of Christianity is fundamentally a message about forgiveness. And if you come as his child seeking God's forgiveness while withholding forgiveness, he will not entertain such hypocrisy on the part of his children. He expects his children to reflect his likeness, to represent him in this fallen world. Your prayers will be hindered if you approach God while you yourself are unforgiving towards others. In the same way that your prayers will be hindered if you're living an unrighteous life. There's a reason the scriptures teach that the prayers of a righteous person are effective. Which implies that unrighteous living affects your prayers. In the same way that unforgiveness will affect your prayers. God will not be mocked. It's almost impossible to comprehend someone experiencing the forgiveness of Jesus and then withholding forgiveness towards others. If anything, it should at least cause you to question whether you've truly experienced the forgiveness of Jesus. Listen, there are three things that Jesus calls his disciples to here in this passage. Faith, confident prayer, and forgiveness. And I truly believe that as Christians, if we live by these things, we'll be living lives so radically different than our society. Completely countercultural. I mean, just think about how radical the idea of prayer is in a secular culture like ours. For 18 months, during this pandemic, we have not heard one Western politician encourage people to pray for God's intervention. Because they think the idea is absurd. Not only that, we live in a society that is obsessed with certain ideas of justice. Everything is about justice right now. And we should want to live in a just society, and we should strive to live in a just society. But a society consumed with concepts of justice that has lost any value for forgiveness is a terrifying society to be a part of. And if we have, as Christians choose to live by forgiveness in the midst of such hostility, we will radically stand out. We will be the true revolutionaries. Douglas Murray, a conservative writer in England, who he's not a Christian, but he was in a conversation with N.T. Wright, and he was talking about this new woke religion that is so consumed with justice but has no concept of forgiveness. And he says, even as a non-Christian, it's completely contrary to what Christianity teaches and then he said this about forgiveness. When people actually see forgiveness, it is the most humbling, 
most moving thing you could ever witness. Brothers and sisters, let's strive by the Spirit of God to be a people of faith, a people who pray with confidence in the God who can, who can do the impossible, and to be a people who are consumed with forgiveness. Let's reflect the city of God in the midst of the city of man. Let's pray. Father, we simply come before you and acknowledge how hard this is. We are so feeble, so broken, so many doubts, so many struggles. So we simply ask that by your spirit, Lord, you would help us to walk by faith and not by sight, to truly pray with confidence, believing that you hear our prayers and that you answer them according to your will. And Lord, we do pray that you would help us in the midst of a culture that is so inflamed with rage, that we would live lives of forgiveness and compassion and mercy, that we would truly reflect our Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.